You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to Grady Hendrix and Chris Poggiale about their book, These Fists Break Bricks, How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World. It is available from it is available from Mondo Books, and I really can't recommend it enough. Check out the interview and be sure to pick up a copy at your local bookstore today. Chris, I want to start with you. You and I have known each other for years, and I'm trying to remember, how did we know each other? How, how did we get acquainted? I wrote to you when you were doing Cashier's de Cinemart and asked if we were making submissions, and you were. So I sent in one article, and I think we traded. We didn't trade zines because I wasn't doing a zine at the time. I think I subscribed at one point, and I also, like Beyond one article that I submitted. And then I contributed to your, I think you had a Kickstarter when you did the Impossible Funky book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We also, we talked at one point because you were doing an article on Fangoria. And so we right. talked on the phone about that because I had, I had written for Fangoria right before they stopped paying people. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I think I got like the last check. <laughs> the last check they cut. Did they have bloody fingerprints on it? Like, no, no, you can't take this from me. <laughs> well, what happened was they, they got me in trouble with the IRS like a year or two after I got that I got that check. Like on Fourth of July weekend. Got home at like five o'clock, checked my mail, and there was this this letter from the IRS. Hey, you, you owe us fourteen thousand dollars. I'm like, what? <laughs> that Jesus. almost ruined yeah, yeah. We talked about that. It was a few few years ago. Oh, my God. And then you and I met at a screening of Black Shampoo, if memory serves. Oh, actually, I was supposed to go to that, and, oh. and I couldn't. But I, th- I think I think a couple of my friends were there, and I think maybe you met up with them afterwards. Okay. Maybe I talked to you on the phone. I called them because I couldn't make it that night, I think is what happened. That's right. That's right. Was that the Brooklyn screening? I think so, yeah. Hey. yeah it was like at the Nighthawk, maybe. Yeah, I, I can remember Aaron Hillis's theater, whatever that was. Oh, they had the, the pop, something, something like that. Yeah, they had. I remember it was the popcorn with all of the different types of like duck fat and all of these different things. What we remember. I think that was the Nighthawk, actually. <laughs> OK, because I think the big gimmick when they opened was like duck fat popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a better man than I for remembering the name of it. Grady, you've been around for years. I've picked up so many of your books over the years. So curious, how did you how did you two meet? Was it through Gingold or Mark Walker, yeah. maybe? Yeah. Remember we sat next to each other one of the Philadelphia yes, shows. That's right. One of the twenty four we fests. I think it was the X Fest and they were showing Man from Hong Kong yeah. and No Mercy Man and, and Fears the Key, I think. So we talked between the movies, compared notes on the on the films, and then 
one of your one of your subway cinema screenings. I think it was Nate. Was it Naked Killer where you did your own? Oh, that was Angel Terminator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was there for that. I sat next to you and watched doing the the subtitling, and you were having so much fun. It was fun, but it was so sophisticated. I'm down in the audience with a laptop. (laughs) You were live subtitling? Yeah, because the movie's great. Angel Terminators is such a good movie, but the Chinese subtitles and then Korean subtitles, I think, on the side... And so a lot of subtitles, nothing in English. So we did yellow ones, like yellow English ones across the bottom over the, the Chinese ones. And and I just like tweak them a little just because, I mean, it's Angel Terminators. Like I'm not really hurting the performances a whole lot. I was looking stuff up on Temple of Schlock, like like ads and things like that before I knew it was you. Like I it was more like anonymous or something. I just never made the connection between you in like meat space and you online. Because that site's a great resource. You spend way too much time making it good. That's right. You know, when you when you moderated the interview with, with Jimmy Wong Yu. I had to get all the stuff about New Spartans from you. Because you had mentioned it very briefly, I think. And then I needed you to sort of brief me on New Spartans because I had never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. And I had talked to, I don't know if I even put it up on the website, but I sent you some quotes, I think, from Patrick Wayne. Because I had interviewed Patrick Wayne about that. And I think we got Jimmy Wong Yu to admit on stage to yet another fight. I've never interviewed someone who loves talking about fighting so much. In that interview alone on stage, he talked about fighting with Oliver Reed during New Spartans. And then also he was really sad at the end because he was like talking about being in a bar in Shanghai or something. And these kids were ragging on some director and he like stood up for the director or the movie or something, got in a fight with them. And then he's like, oh, and then the police had to come. And then he got really sad. And he's like, you know, they used a taser. And it was like, it was like he would have won if they hadn't cheated. You know, it was he was so down. The guy's like in his 70s. So you've already mentioned quite a few titles that are in these fists break bricks, how Kung Fu movies swept America and changed the world. But how did the project come about? How did you guys decide, like, this is a book that we're both going to work on? I mean, Chris was really, I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, you were like, I like the paperbacks from Hell thing you did. I've got this collection of stuff. I think there's a story here. We started talking and there was, and it got a little out of hand. The avenues we went down and the materials we found, and especially Chris really dug up like some amazing stuff and and did some great interviews. And like, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. We just kept rewriting and rewriting the book to accommodate all this stuff. And, and I actually, I actually wish we had another pass or two at it. I think there were things we could do to sort of smooth it out and strengthen parts of it and stuff. But, but at a certain point, no book's perfect. You kind of like, you hit your line, you know, this is the book. I mean, that happened with paperbacks from hell and it happened with this. And, but yeah, I mean, that was really Chris just being like, he had all this material and was like, there's a story here. There's gotta be. Mike Gingold's book, Ad Nauseam, when that came out three years ago, been involved with it just kind of on the fringes of that, helped him get an interview with Terry Levine for that book. And I contributed a couple of the ads, but I was involved with it. And I liked the book quite a bit. I liked the format of it, but because it's all newspaper ads, I thought, you know, if it'd be something like this for martial arts movies and mix in posters, so there's color. So there's more color to it because the coffee table book 
And then more interviews, because I really liked the interview that he did with Terry Levine and with Wayne Weil. That was really the beginning of it was I imagined coffee table book with a lot of movie posters and ads and some interviews. And in talking with Grady, because I called Grady one day and said, you know, is there an idea here? Because I had pitched it to a couple of other publishers and they were like not into it at all. And I was telling them, I said, you know, I have a feeling nobody's going to listen to you when you say, you know, I have a feeling. I I think they had just announced that Shang-Chi movie was going to be. And I said, well, might take two years for it to get made. They hadn't cast Shang-Chi yet. You know, there's going to be a real comeback in martial arts movies, and it would be great to have this book come out then. And so, so I talked to a couple of different people and they were underwhelmed. So, so I called Grady about it and we talked. And in talking, it became immediately more than a poster, an ad book. I mean, because Grady liked Mike's book also, but he said, you know, there's a story here whereas there's not really a story with the movie ads and the movie ads are just going to go chronologically. Whereas there's a story here. And especially if we take it, because I remember Grady said, I'm really interested in the idea of doing it from the American, you know, from the U S point of view way these movies came over. And there's like an exchange, a cultural exchange going on. And, and so it grew from there. I really, I don't know how Chris feels about this. I imagine he parks his car kind of in the same garage, but I really hate cultural coverage and writing that talks about culture like it's some kind of organic animal. In the 70s, you know, martial arts movies became big. It's like, no, they didn't. That didn't just happen. A martial arts movie became big. Like something had, there was a first one. Someone did that. And then other people came second. And then third, like it's a very vague hand wavy thing you see sometimes, especially when people write about movies and I get why they do it. As we sort of saw with this, once you start digging into the research, it just becomes almost infinite at times. And pinning down the facts can be really, really difficult, but I think it's really important. I think it's really important to say, you know, in America, five fingers of death was first, then came duel of the iron fist. You know what I mean? And just to, just to break that down. I mean, it's just, I think it matters. And I think it also, you know, we look around and we, I mean, we're all film fans and we look at what happened to movies and movie going in sort of the late 80s into the early 90s, you know, VCRs getting so popular and the sort of grindhouse movie going experience going away to some extent. Now, in retrospect, you look back, and you're like, well, it didn't go away as hard and fast as we thought it did, but it went away in certain neighborhoods. You know, there were still crummy theaters all over New York City in the 90s, but the ones on Times Square were gone. You know, the famous ones were gone. Why? And I think that gave us kind of a natural end point because we realized that sort of in the same period in the late 80s and in the early 90s, not only did cities across the country start realizing that they were missing out on tax dollars by letting these crummy theaters take up valuable midtown real estate and and urban real estate, but also TV stations, you know, when Reagan changed the FCC rules, that you could have more than X amount of minutes of advertising back to back. Stations were like, it took a few years, but they were like, wait a minute, why are we paying to show packages of movies late at night when we could sell that airspace to Thighmaster? And then I feel like there was a a real backlash around then 
which was, and this is the first moment where I really knew this book was going to be something because Chris sent me these articles he found about this Easter Sunday riot in Philadelphia during a screening of The Last Dragon. And it wasn't really during a screening of The Last Dragon, but The Last Dragon screening got blamed for it. And it was, you know, basically Black kids who were all out on Easter Sunday, hanging out, having a good time. And the movies were sold out. Kids were getting rowdy and the theater lit out. It was like The Last Dragon and Friday 13, Part 6. And some kids rushed the door to try to get in. And it just turned into a big street rumble. And like, you know, these things happen. Windows got broken, property got damaged, but the police came down with this iron thing, you know, these martial arts movies and blah, blah. And the implication was these, you know, you couldn't control your kids. Kids would see these movies and get out of control and be inside. And the real, what you read between the lines was black kids would see these movies and go out of control. And that's really, and Chris sort of put it together and we realized that that was sort of a starting point for this thing in movie going where you'd see with, Colors, you know, there's Sean Penn, Rob Dolly, but really you'd see it with Boys in the Hood too, and New Jack City, you know, where people would want cops in theaters because they thought these black films would cause all this spontaneous violence. And so all this stuff sort of came together, these movies getting a reputation for being like, you know, violent and and real estate, people wanting to make more money off their real estate in an urban level. And then, you know, the movies going off the air. Um, and, and video becoming much more widespread and cheaper, all sort of converged in this. But, you know, it takes a while to put all that together. Well, that was one thing that I really appreciated about the book was the whole idea, this confluence of Asian culture and African-American culture. And I just really appreciated how you told that story and how there were certain martial artists who just fit into that so well, like Jim Kelly, uh, Ron Van Cleef, these guys were just like, it is such an important cultural touchstone uh, to, to be able to tell the story of how these films helped inform African-American culture in the United States. You know, and there's a bigger, better story there too. I mean, I feel like we touched on it and talked about it, But I feel like someone could write a whole book just focusing on that. Um, There was a huge crossover between hip hop and b-boying and martial arts. You know, one thing that we looked for and that I I spent a while looking for is one of the b-boy crews had a flyer early on for one of their early performances. There was like b-boying, a combination of dance, hip hop, graffiti and martial arts. I want to find that. It was at a Queens library. I just couldn't. Couldn't dig it up anywhere. You know, I emailed people who might have had it and just, nope, it was a dead end. But someone with more time and and resources probably could. But there was this big influence there. I mean, back and forth. These movies almost, I mean, Chris, really from 73, end of 73, beginning of 74, I mean, distributors realized that these movies played gangbusters in Black and Latin communities almost more than anywhere else. And then slowly that came sort of like, you know, in the distributor's eyes, that kind of ghettoized them. These movies were, you know, played these theaters. So therefore, eh, they probably weren't good movies. Many of them weren't. It was within six months of the release of Five Fingers of Death, where distributors realized that uh, a lot of the people who were going to see the martial arts movies were African-American and Hispanic. And they started gearing the advertising 
toward the, that audience uh, by using uh, African-American actors and personalities uh, to advertise the movies, uh, really beginning with Adolf Caesar doing the Deadly China Doll trailer for MGM. Uh, he had been doing like the black exploitation movie trailer uh, voiceovers and, and radio spots for American International. And uh, they got him to do Deadly China Doll. And then from there, he did a lot of the martial arts trailers for Aquarius and 21st Century and uh, Transcontinental and, and other companies. And uh, another actor from New York, African-American, uh, an actor named Al Fan, he advertised himself as the best black voice in New York. And he did a lot of uh, radio and, and you know, some TV commercials, but he was mostly a radio personality uh, of, of uh, commercials. Like uh, he was the official voice of x on the radio and did, did a lot of movie uh, appearances. Um, anybody who's seen The French Connection, they'll remember the scene where Hackman and Roy Scheider go into the bar and, and roust uh, all the people in the bar in Harlem and uh, Al Fan is the actor that uh, Hackman drags into the bathroom and it turns out he's an informant. And uh, so he gives, you know, the information, you know, what little he has to Hackman. Uh, so that's Al Fan. He did the trailers for uh, Queen Boxer and the Tong Father. Uh, and uh, Jerry Bledsoe uh, was another uh, African-American personality in New York. He was a DJ for WWRL, uh, which was a, a soul radio station in New York for a long time. He was there over 10 years. Uh, he was also known as Jerry B. He was the announcer for the PBS series Soul, uh, which was hosted by Ellis Hazlip. And there was a documentary recently in the last year or two, uh, Mr. Soul, which was about Hazlip and, and that TV series. And uh, so so Jerry Bledsoe was the voice of that show, as, as well as he, he hosted a TV show on uh, WPIX Channel 11 called Soul Alive, which was like Channel 11 Soul Train or um, Solid Gold. And so he he had this background, and he was very familiar to audiences uh, in uh, and listeners in New York. And he uh, he did a number of the trailers for Sarah from Carolexis, beginning with Karate Killer. He did the Black Dragon trailer, Eagle Shadow. He also did narration for some of uh, Seraphim's movies, like he does the the opening narration for Death Promise. And, and also Eagle Shadow, and he did uh, all the narration for the documentary, The Super Weapon. Not to get too granular, but I'm very curious as far as, you know, you have, both of you guys are known for your research, and I'm very curious as far as how you divvied up the work, as far as who did what, how you put all this stuff together. Chris did a huge amount of digging, like so many of the deep dives, and, and, a, and a lot of the interviews I had done a lot of interviews and, and sort of helped round them up for this documentary I did with Netflix called Iron Fist and Kung Fu Kicks. So I brought that stuff in. A lot of, I mean, I don't know, Chris, how did it split up to you? Because I felt like you were bringing a lot of stuff in. Well, I had a lot of articles and reviews and things that I had found over the years already. And then once I decided that I wanted to do a book eventually. Uh, I started gathering more information. I had a lot of magazines, like whenever I would find 
like martial arts movie magazines. I mean, I had some from 40 years ago <laughs> bought when they first came out. And, but then there were ones that I got back issues of like fighting stars and, and inside Kung Fu. So I had a lot of the you know, stacks of these martial arts magazines from the seventies and eighties and that I scanned. So I would go through and scan those and newspaper articles and things from Variety and Box Office and Hollywood Reporter that I clipped. And so I was always looking for things related to martial arts, martial artists, especially ones that made movies or television appearances and also movie theaters. I have a lot of research movie theaters around the country, like the Colonial Theater in, in Hartford, Connecticut, which was a Kung Fu theater for, for years. So I had an article about that and theater in Atlanta called the Rialto. And yeah, so I just had a lot of research. There were some articles that Grady would send me a citation for, and he'd say, can you find this? <laughs> like the one on Jason Lau, yeah, with his neighborhood newspaper, I think. Well, that was because I, I think I met Jason at that action, wasn't Urban Action Expo, although I did go to that and meet a bunch of people. It was like the mega action thing out in Atlantic City, which was wild, man. It's like this giant kind of martial art convention for two days at a casino out in Atlantic City. It was like the middle of winter. It was like January 2020. And I went out there with the martial artist named Vincent Lin, who I knew a little bit through doing Subway Cinema, and then Rick Myers. And we shared a condo and we'd go over to this convention every day. And it was just like meeting so many people, but also like, you know, they had like a big formal dinner where Curtis Sliwa gave a speech and uh, Joe Piscopo like sung New York, New York. And it was just weird. It was very hallucinatory. There was a moment where it was like, Cynthia Rothrock and Don the Dragon Wilson and Bill Superfoot Wallace were like dancing together on the floor. It was like just surreal. But I did a ton of interviews there also. And so it was like really, and also like meeting people was really essential for this, especially with Black martial artists. Like I think a lot of them are used to being misrepresented to some extent. And they're a little wary. People I was meeting were a little wary about the press, martial artists in general, I should say. And meeting them and letting them see your face and listening to them and all that was was kind of important to get their cooperation. I mean, I did, I did, I think I did a six-hour interview with Dennis Brown after I met him, like in two parts at Urban Action Expo and a student of Ron Van Cleef's I talked with for hours and hours. And like, you know, if I hadn't met them in person, I don't think they would have done that, you know. And then they led to other people like Glenn Perry, who who was one of Ron Van Cleef's students, introduced me to, to Vic Moore, who did a really long interview. Vic Moore is a really nice guy. Moore's got a lot of stories. And, and I thought we were getting to the end of the interview. And I asked him about Trudy, who had been mentioned in like a line in an article, who was a chimpanzee. He had taught karate. Oh, no, he taught, I think it was karate, uh, too. And man, I got Trudy stories for like an hour, which were incredible. I mean, really incredible, but also like, you know, there's only so much room for Trudy in the book. But, you know, one of the things with this project that was like Chris was saying, just accumulating this material and collecting it and finding and scanning it, like wrestling this material was a huge undertaking. And there was so much reading, like Jesus Christ. I feel like I've read every issue of Deadly Hands of Kung Fu by now, like. 
So I grew up in the 70s. I think you guys are probably somewhere contemporary mine. I just didn't really realize how ingrained martial arts were in culture and just thinking like when I would see some of these ads, especially the comic book ads that you featured in one part, I was like, oh yeah, I know this completely. Or And then it started me thinking of like, oh yeah, like Chinese throwing stars were such a big deal and like they were outlawed and like nunchucks, like everyone was just like, oh, nunchucks are so deadly and get those out of the schools. Not that anybody in my little white bread neighborhood, you know, had nunchucks, but it was just amazing to see and to recall how ingrained that stuff was with popular culture. And you guys just really captured that. Like I've tried to explain that to people before how, major this was i mean you talked about shang chi coming out and it's like yeah integrated it into comic books people are trying to cash in it on it there on television on songs i'm just amazing that you managed to encapsulate that whole world of how important that was and how much a part of our dna that became it's funny going going back and looking at the progression of how it really seeped in and then there was this explosion really you know around even like in 1972 it's it's still it's there but hasn't kung fu is on the air and and it then just took a couple of months more and yeah it was everywhere and you can go backwards you can take somebody like yun wu ping and look at back go go backwards to shaw brothers and you know or pretty much anybody you go back to like 1965 66 Shaw Brothers and you know Jackie Chan came out of Golden Harvest and Seasonal both of those companies were started by people who left Shaw Brothers and yeah and goes back to Shaw Brothers and then before that it's Japanese cinema and and spaghetti westerns you know the, you you start to see really kind of comes together in martial arts now see you know, housewives doing you know, fights in, in movies and every, everybody is trained in martial arts in movies now like every other movie is about it person <laughs> you know is a, is a you know is a hired killer and they have martial arts training you know, of some kind yeah and, and a lot of it you know, came out of the military as well like chris is saying so like everyone does martial arts in movies now i mean everyone john wick is basically like you know a martial Gun arts food. movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that stuff's roots were so crazy and, and misinformed and weird. Like, you know, because we didn't know much. Banning throwing stars and nunchucks, that was all based on articles that were unsourced, written, that appeared in like Newsweek and stuff, you know, where a police officer, I've seen men, you know, those nunchucks are used to strangle a police officer. No, he didn't. He never saw that, you know. The New York Times like precipitated a full on police crackdown in Harlem in 66, I think. Because they published these completely fabricated stories about the Blood Brothers, a gang of karate experts who were out to kill whites. Like, you know, they've never apologized for that. And it was just baloney. And so this stuff just sort of like has, you know, and then 
one of the things that we sort of realized putting this together, because one of the things Chris and I went up spending so much time on is that in the beginning part, because we were like, we got to know what, even if it's not in the book, we've got to know what was here. That stuff, though, you you look at this, you know, how sort of at the turn of the century, judo and jujitsu, which were kind of used interchangeably here, came over and became this big fad, you know, the early 20th century. And then that all ended with the internment camps. And, you know, and, and judo continued on, but I mean, really wiped out a page and sort of had to start over. And that's wild to me. You know, that, that you know, you've got Theodore Roosevelt doing judo in the White House. You've got these Japanese judokas coming over and just like whipping ass on these sort of like in these public fights. And and it's a real part of the culture. You've got something like 20 something dojos in Southern California. And then boom, it's all gone in an instant and has to rebuild. I mean, it's wild. Um, and so we've always had in the States a sort of love, hate, fear, embrace of martial arts. And it's a very strange back and forth, I think. I love the way that you take things through and you have these little, let's call them pit stops. So like talking about Carl Douglas and everyone was Kung Fu fighting. like That's amazing to hear the Carl Douglas story. One of those moments that you have in the book that just floored me was something that I've always been endlessly fascinated about, which was all of the clones of Bruce Lee. And just having those, all of those different actors and as much information, and I know I think there was at least one guy where it's like, we don't know that much about this person. But there were so many other people where it's like, oh yeah, here's the story of this guy. I never thought I would be able to read that much information about these people that were in these Bruce exploitation films. Nothing almost caused a brain aneurysm more than that Bruce Lee directory, the Bruce exploitation directory. And we were both really determined to do that because we were both like, there needs to be a list. Like even really good books. There's a great one that I use some for reference and I can't remember the title, which just makes me useless, but they didn't even have everyone listed. And it's like someone needed to make a list. And man, it almost killed both of us. I think that there's a book from the last couple of years called, I think it's called Re-Enter the Dragon. Yeah, it's funny because Grady said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just dive in, exploitation stuff. And halfway through, you were like, oh my God. Even just talking about it, we'd be like on the phone being like, Bruce Lay, which Bruce Lay? Like, L-E-Y, L-E-I, like, who? Who are you saying? It was so confusing. Right, because, I, yeah, I was saying Bruce Lai. I mean, Bruce Lee. It's all Bruce Lee. it's spelled L-I. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so Grady thought I was talking about L-Y. So after a while, we would just spell out the last name. Like, oh, Bruce L-E, or Bruce L-I, or Bruce L-Y, or... And through all of my posters one day, hours, hours, we still don't know who Snapper Lee is, right? Yeah. And some of these weren't real people. Some of these were you know, Asawaki Karate as Sonny Bruce and Bruce Lee. I mean, it was just like so, you know, someone just slaps a title on a movie poster in 1976 and they don't know how much work they're creating for Chris and I in 2019. And that was actually my favorite part of the book is when Chris was showing me all those Jorlane Bennett made up like credit blocks that were just like Wayne Wiles name backwards or, you know, the name Helios Bold, the name of a font. Like, what did it matter? They didn't know who was in these movies. So they just fabricated credits to make it look like a real movie. I asked Wayne, about one of the movies is directed by Ted Knight. And I said, oh, 
it's a joke, right? Somebody was a Mary Tyler Moore fan. He goes, no, that was one of our artists. His name was Ted Knight. So much stuff that didn't even like make it in the book. Like one of the things we tried to do was do interviews with a lot of these artists. And so, you know, there's very little info in there about Marcus Boaz. We just ran out of room. There's nothing much in there about Tom Tierney, which I find fascinating that Tom Tierney was like this fabulous, like really wealthy, really successful commercial illustrator who did these posters and then found insane fame and wealth doing paper dolls after that. Like, I mean, paper dolls made Tom Tierney's life. His life story is really, really interesting. We talked to some of his um, his nieces and nephews and they loved him. And like, he wound up moving down later life when he got sort of a little older and had health problems and couldn't take care of himself. That's kind of fascinating to me, but like, you know, we just ran out of room. The layout of the book is so good. And I'm curious who did that and how long did that take? A very long time. That was Craig Oldham, right, Chris? Craig Oldham is a British designer that Mondo brought on board and they really like dove into this thing. And the layout of this, you have to work really, really closely with the designer because even like where the text breaks to fall onto a next page can throw out off the layout. So it was hard. The layout was really, really hard. I mean, I think there were, there were basically three days where we were on a zoom call for, I think one day it was 16 hours. One day it was 12 and one day it was like 11, three days in a row, just going through the layout to correct captions to, okay, this, we know there's a higher res version of this poster in this, you know, 42 gig Google drive we were all sharing. Yeah. I mean, just like, just that kind of stuff really was, was brutal. And, and that was, that was tough. The layout was hard. I don't know if anything could surprise you too, because you have done so much research over the years, but was there anything that you found while you were doing this book where you said, Holy shit, I had no idea this. Oh, hell yes. I want to hear Chris's though. Cause I've got tons. One of the, you know, many, surprises and and uh i guess shockers or or uh, whatever like really opened our eyes uh when we were doing the book when i went into this i knew that uh that there had been a lot of women involved with the uh the journalism side of martial arts movies i had read the the uh the magazine martial arts movies in the early 80s and i had not really made the connection until i started going back and looking at the issues and i saw that the the top three editors of the magazine sandra siegel uh lucille tahiri and neva frieden and i said oh well that that's interesting but then i remembered that uh that there had been fanzines in the 70s and early 80s like karen Schaub had done a fanzine called the jade screen and before that uh she had been involved with one called fan graphic with two other women in florida wanda butts and rebecca hall and they uh rebecca and well actually no it wasn't rebecca karen went on to write for uh, martial arts movies for Sandra Siegel and and Neva Fried and Lucille Tahiri, and there are also there are other writers uh, like uh, uh, Jessica Amanda Salmonson, uh, who is a science fiction writer. She did a lot of writing uh, about samurai and ninja for these magazines and for fanzines, and she she was also a trans woman in in the mid seventies who documented that. 
in in a fanzine in a science fiction fanzine uh, in the mid seventies. So there were there were a lot of women. Also, uh, Sydney Filson, who made a name for herself uh, in the fitness field. She had a book about uh, jumping rope for fitness. And she had been married to Owen Watson, the martial artist, and had been in a couple of movies with him and uh, also became a novelist. And, and so she, she had a, a diverse background. She was an editor of a magazine called Dragon that was a British magazine that had a, a short stay in the United States. There was a, a U.S. version of Dragon, and she was the editor of that. Uh, she Wanted in a, she won the the uh, editorship in a contest, and she didn't even know she had entered her uh, her husband Owen Watson entered her in the contest, and she said, "Okay, great. I mean, I have a journalism background. I'm a writer. Sure, why not? And I'm a martial artist. I mean, she she had studied with Ron Van Cleef and with Frank Ruiz and a, a number of the the martial arts instructors in New York. So she seemed like the perfect the perfect fit for that." I went into this book knowing a lot of this, but I, I wanted to reach out to these women and interview them about uh, about their work in in uh, you know the martial arts field and in the journalism uh, side of it. And so I tracked down Sandra Siegel, uh, and I found out that she's now Judge Sandra Ikuda of the Ninth District circuit um court of appeals uh she's court of appeals judge since 2006 she was appointed by george w bush <laughs> and and so i i did i did get in touch with her and interviewed her and, and she was really great and and also her husband i interviewed them both her husband ed akuda was the photographer for martial arts magazines uh throughout the 70s and 80s uh, beginning with Black Belt, he he started off as the photographer for Black Belt magazine, and he went on to Fighting Stars, Inside Karate, Official. I mean, he he photographed everybody for all the the major magazines, and uh, I mean he, he he by everybody I mean he he photographed Bruce Lee and Kareem Abdul Jabbar, Sugarfoot Wallace, Jim Kelly. Uh, anytime they uh, at Fighting Stars, they were interviewing a celebrity who knew martial arts. Uh, they they would send Ed, so he photographed William Shatner, <laughs> uh, Roger Moore. Yeah, he he was he was all over, and yeah, and and so he was great to talk to. Also, so I interviewed them for about an hour or so, uh, about a year and a half ago. And, and so, so that was great. Just like looking, looking around for her and then wait a minute, she's, she's a judge now. <laughs> so I, so I sent, uh, I sent a letter to the, to the courthouse and, and, you know, a week or two later got an email. But, you know, one of the things is Sydney Filson and Neva Frieden and even like Marsha Silen and Joan DeAnda, I wish we'd had more room to talk more about them because they were sort of not main figures in this scenario and locker room I'm with talking about martial arts there was so much of this that really blew my mind the thing the two things that really blew my mind is we got this writer Dan Kelly who'd written an article about Count Dante John Kean and also he wrote the the comic book ad thing he'd written that and we adapted it for this and I had had this idea that really do more of that with other writers and it just wound up just it was so hard to coordinate and his stuff was great and we nailed it down but Count Dante is an 
incredible human being. I mean, you know, he's really fascinating. You know, he started as this guy who really helped integrate the U.S. United States Karate Association. He really was a significant presence in Chicago. He hit hard time. I mean, he really turned into sort of a parody of himself. He had this whole, you know, he he was questioned for armored car robbery. He went on trial for, you know, being a party to a murder and a, a dojo fight. And this whole thing And I remember getting the end of Dan's article and, you know, Dante died, probably some kind of like peptic or something wild. And it's like, he was 36. And I was just like, what? Jesus Christ. Um, But the thing that got me really, really, really got me was I managed to interview Charles Bonet for that Iron Fist and Kung Fu Kicks documentary. And we never were able to set up interview with him for the documentary. So I interviewed him more for the book because he was living in New Mexico at the time. And Charles had run the the South Bronx Budokai, which was sort of a notoriously rough dojo in New York. And then he was in Super Weapons. He was in the Black Dragon Returns and and uh, Death Promise. And, you know, Death Promise is such a kooky, ridiculous movie. But talking to Charles, and he gave so much time and was such a great guy. And I interviewed him a few times over the phone. And when he was a kid, the neighborhood he lived in was San Juan Hill, which his family was evicted from when that was turned into Lincoln Center. And, you know, and you can see the rubble in the background of West Side Story of San Juan Hill. So he's totally displaced. And then he goes off and like does the Bronx Budokai and winds up like losing his dojo and having to be displaced again. Then he does death promise, you know, about, you know, fighting like homelessness and all this. And then he actually literally wound up homeless on the streets and his students really came and sort of picked him up. And it was sort of this amazing narrative. And and Charles died while we were writing the book. And that really got to me. I was rewatching death promise and, you know, just for the book and that corny opening narration about like greedy landlords and all this, man, it just hit me. I was like, that's Charles's life. And it just, man, I just bawled like a baby over. I'm probably the only person to ever cry over death promise, but there was something about this book where these corny, cheesy, low budget, you know, cheap movies that were made to make a buck became bigger than that in some respects and in some people's lives and people's dignity got wrapped up in them and the stories they told about themselves. And you see, I mean, you can see it in some bits of The Deadly Art of Survival. You can see it in some of Ron Van Cleef's movies. You can, you know, I see it in Death Part. You just see it from time to time in these movies and it's just... I don't know. That's the thing that got to me the most about this book is watching how these movies sort of intersected people's real lives. Yeah, there's so many different, like a musical composition, so many different movements, like the the films that come over that come over initially, the the cheaper versions, the low budget knockoffs that we start to make, the way that things shift into like the canon films, and just it's just amazing how it moved from time to time to time, and that you were able to document all of this. It's such a, a valuable resource. Some of this stuff, it's like watching Black Samurai. And just sort of knowing where, I mean, like Jim Kelly, I don't want to have dinner with Jim Kelly. I mean, he's, he's an an amazing 
artist in what he did and a really significant figure, but he's also, do you read enough interviews with Jim Kelly and you're like, oh my God, this guy, he just won't quit, you know? But I mean, that was the name of the game, right? That kind of self-promotion and all that. And I think he saw Muhammad Ali do that and he saw Bruce Lee do that. And he was like, well, I'm going to do that. And he just didn't have the touch they did. Made that stuff sound cocky, but not arrogant. And, you know, I don't know what it was, but like to watch him in Black Samurai and just to know sort of where his career was at the time, it's like so depressing. <laughs> Trying to watch Hot Potato, uh, some of the other films, it's like, my God, what happened to this guy? He was so talented. And you see it happen a lot with people who aren't actors, first off. You see it with martial artists, I feel like, you know, or even with sports figures or music figures who get into movies and acting and things. They wind up trusting. I mean, they're suspicious, right? They feel like they're in somewhere there. It's a new environment. Someone's going to rip them off. And they wind up inevitably trusting the exact wrong people and not trusting the people who they should be trusting, you know, and it's hard to make that call, but you're like, oh, so-and-so turned down this role, but wound up being in this one. Like what? I had no idea about those Cato films until I read about them. I had never run across those before talking about picking at the corpse, right? Those played for years. You know, and that story of Marco and Larry Joaquin was one Chris brought to the table in the beginning. And like my head exploded. Yeah, I, I, I met them through my blog. They, they needed some research about those about those Green Hornet movies. And so they, they noticed that there were some ads on my blog that were related to those films. So they, they said, oh, you know, do this for fun. It gets slow. And I sometimes spend you know seven hours going through art articles and databases and newspaper ads and everything. So yeah, no, no problem. You don't have to hire me. I'll, I'll gladly do it. What's this for? And they said, oh, it was Marco I was talking to. He said, my father was a distributor. I said, oh, did he run Transcontinental? Yeah. How did you know that? I said, oh, among other things, Cannibal Holocaust, you know, was a transcontinental release. And yeah, so so we just started talking. And so I ended up interviewing Larry and Marco and became friends with Marco and, and yeah, got together with them. And and yeah, it's just so much information about those about those movies. Two Green Hornet movies, and then like Grady mentioned earlier, Iswaki Karada being renamed Bruce Lowe. That was Marco who did that. He said, hey, you know, that guy looks kind of like Bruce Lee. Why don't we call him Bruce Lowe? And his you know, 14-year-old is, hey, Dad, you should come up with something else for this movie, some other way to promote this movie. It was a Sonny Chiba movie called The Executioner, and they cut the trailer together, and they were watching, and they needed something, and Marco would write the trailer copy. And he said, how about Bruce Lowe? So they just named him Bruce Lowe in the trailer. And then they had another movie that he was the star of. So they put his name on the poster for that. So uh, all, all these stories that I wondered about, like where, where did Bruce Lowe come from? You guys have any idea how they came up with the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen speech for the beginning of the bodyguard? That was, that was Simon Nocturne who, who did that additional footage for the bodyguard. I asked him about that. He said he was pretty sure that that came from Terry Levine. Or, or Wayne Weil. It was somebody somebody at the Aquarius office brought that in. Uh, and I I don't think I asked Wayne or Terry about it, but Simon 
pretty sure it came from them. And he was on the shoot, all that stuff in Times Square and at Aaron Banks' studio. He was telling me it's all handheld camera because you can't put the camera on a tripod and you need you need to go through the city. You need to get a permit. So he got a cameraman. Couldn't remember his name. But he said it was a big German guy who had no problem holding that camera and real steady with that's what I needed. I couldn't put it down. So we had to have a big guy carry that camera through Times Square and up the steps into Aaron Banks' studio. That was like the most important thing was somebody who hold that camera and keep it steady. But yeah, he was he was pretty sure it came from Terry. Are you guys doing any sort of touring or promotional stuff around the book? I think we are. Yeah, we're doing fantastic. And I know there's stuff after that. I just don't know when it is yet. I think we're waiting to hear. Do you know, Chris? No, I just know that there are some screenings at Fantastic Fest, and we're doing a bingo game that's like a martial arts-related bingo game. And and then we're supposed to do appearances at some of the some of the Alamo draft houses, like but not nothing is set up yet. No no dates, but it's probably going to be Brooklyn and. Yonkers, and then there's some talk about going to uh, Dan Halstead's theater in Portland. And I just noticed last night, I think he had his first Kung Fu screening in a year and a half. He showed Mystery of Chess Box. Of course he did. Why wouldn't you? Where's the best place for people to keep up with the book and, and these events? Well, Grady has a Twitter account, and I have a Facebook account. Yeah, and Chris's Facebook account's been active in terms of keeping track of the book. I've been posting different like facts and, and birthdays and, and death dates and so on. The last post I did was on Saturday. It was the 40th anniversary of Chinatown Kid showing on Channel 5 for the first time, drive-in movie, and doing things like that, tying it in with the book. Yes, at some point, they'll put some of these things on through Mondo's Twitter and Facebook page. They'll they'll send out that news as the dates are established. Like, you don't know really what night the screening is, screenings yes. for Fantastic Fest. Yeah, but yeah, oh, as they come up, some, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a little unfair to ask yeah. since your book hasn't even come out yet at the time of this recording. But what are you guys working on now? Right now, I'm writing the book, my novel that's coming out next summer. I've got a screenplay for Horror Store, a book I did about a haunted Ikea that I'm I'm wrapping up. But like both those are due this month. So I'm like sweating bullets over those. I wrote a book a couple of years ago with Mike Gingold, which is about the Warriors. And making oh, talk the about a controversial and, screening, right? Where they were killing each other yeah. at those screenings. There's a whole story behind that. It wasn't published. And now it's going to be published next next year in the spring. So, so we got it back from the original publisher. We found another publisher. So we're doing some rewriting on that and, and adding some some additional information. And then book on Race with the Devil, the making of Race with the Devil. So finishing that. And I'm also, uh, one thing came out of these Fists Break Bricks was I fell in love again with Japanese movies, which I always enjoyed. But I, I wrote this section on... The Street Fighter was really written a few years ago. The foundation of it was written for the Blu-ray set for Sister Street Fighter. And then I took out some stuff and added a lot of additional things. And Brady really likes the Sister Street Fighter movies. Brady, I don't think you're a fan of the Sonny Chiba films. Yeah, I'm, no, he, he's not my wavelength. 
I recognize his genius. He's just not my preferred flavor. So Grady was like, please take, take the Sonny Chiba section, work on that. So I took that, that just talked earlier about falling down different rabbit holes and going off on tangents. And, and I just went way out on, on this, this Japanese tangent. And so I coming up with an idea for a book on Japanese cinema. That Street Fighter section was, I think, twice as long <laughs> before I got to the book. I mean, it was, the level of detail was amazing. It, you know, it encompassed also Samurai and Yakuza movies from the, from the 60s and uh, Paul Schrader's screenplay for the Yakuza. So I was able to take that uh, and then expand on it for an essay that I wrote just a few weeks ago for The Deuce, which is monthly movie series that both of us introduced shows for. I know Grady introduced Raw Force Screening and also Queen Boxer. So yeah, that's like every summer, like Grady would do the July screening and I would do the, or no, I would do July and Grady would do August. And so Joe Berger, who's one of the organizers of the Deuce, he came to us and said, another summer where we can't have any screenings at the Nighthawk. Would you guys be interested in writing blog posts for us. Chris, if you can do July and, and, you know, Grady can do August or vice versa. And so, yeah, okay. So what do you want to do? And you could do anything but Kung Fu because Grady is doing something about Mad Monkey Kung Fu to tie in with your book. I said, okay, well, I'll do samurai movies to tie in with the book because we have a little section on on samurai and karate movies. So it worked out really well. So mine went up a few weeks. Mine's going up in two weeks, I think. Double feature of Mystery of Chess Boxing and Mad Monkey Kung Fu. Well, Chris and Grady, thank you so much for your time, guys. This has been fantastic. I can't tell you how much I love the book, and I hope everybody picks it up. It's a perfect gift for Christmas. Everybody needs to have a copy of it on the bookshelf. It is such a great resource. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks for having us on the show. Butterfly, take yourself away on a natural high. You feel like.
what you do. 